I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. If you're watching live, happy Sunday. If you're listening to the podcast, hello again. Please subscribe, leave us five stars and a review if you can. Ooh, blimey, what a show we've got today. It is a big show, and it's a very important show. I think it's worth just pointing out, just spelling something out. Our democracy was not given to us as an act of goodwill and charity by the powerful. It was fought for at great cost and great sacrifice by people who were often demonized, reviled, attacked by police officers with truncheons in their faces, kicked to the ground by the police for that matter, spat out in the street, demonised by the media, thrown into prison cells, and in various parts of our history, tortured and indeed murdered. That's how democracy was won. It was fought for over a very, very, very long period of time. And democracy is not something which is permanent. Those rights and freedoms are not won for all eternity. They are constantly threatened by the powerful. And I think that context is important for what we're talking about today, which is it is striking how many establishment figures will look back at protests in the past and laud them. But of course, those protesters at the time they speak of were demonized and hated and attacked by police officers. But they will never do that about any which happen or exist today. Now, I'm going to start by we're going to we're going to just give a bit of context before we bring in some eyewitnesses, journalists, uh, as well as protesters. Uh, and later on, we'll be talking as well at the end of the programme to a, appropriately enough, a Bristol Labour uh, former candidate who's been deselected for excessively criticising Keir Starmer. We'll talk about Labour at the end of the programme, which is his own um, uh, burning skip in its own right. So I think that will be taken separately. Um, in terms of what happened in Bristol? So we've had protests which really began last Sunday against the repressive policing bill, which gives the police massive power to essentially ban any protest they want. Any protest that is deemed to cause annoyance. Protests are meant to cause annoyance to the powerful. Um, as well as, and it should be said, targeting uh, Roma, traveller uh, and gypsy communities um, particularly egregiously, one of the most oppressed groups, minorities in the whole of Europe. Uh, but these protests on Sunday, uh, the Bristol police uh, claimed that their officers had suffered serious injuries, broken bones and a punctured lung. All of this was widely amplified by most of the British media, including in, in, in several headlines, all used to build an atmosphere in which protesters are demonised and a atmosphere of arguing that ever more repressive powers are needed by the police and the state. Uh, now, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, these officers were uh, were not seriously injured. Unfortunately, uh, the news that they were not seriously, thankfully injured, did not get anywhere near the same coverage as the initial headlines claiming they did. Um, as it turned out, a lot of those protesters had themselves suffered at the hands of the police. But on Friday, we saw renewed protests uh, in Bristol. Uh, sorry, Thursday, uh, Friday. Last week, Friday, um, 
And uh, these scenes were hor- horrendous, genuinely horrendous. Let's just start by talking about a Daily Mirror journalist who was assaulted by the police and released a video in which he said he muted the latter part of the video to spare you all the pain of hearing my shrill voice. That was Matthew Dresch at the Daily Mirror. Now, a statement released by Avon and Somerset Police said they were aware of a video showing a journalist being confronted by officers. Confronted by officers. Very Orwellian use of language, as you can see there. Confronted. That was not confronted. That was a journalist being assaulted by the police. In another example, a protester who was lying on the floor and posing no threat was attacked by the police. Uh, For those listening on the podcast, apologies, you can't see the images, but from the sounds, you get the gist. Um, A photographer was also assaulted by the police. Uh, protesters on the ground were indiscriminately hit by police shields. Uh, a woman was attacked in the face. Now, my Guardian colleague, Damien Gale, uh, who was a journalist, who's an excellent journalist, uh, who properly covered the police brutality. Now, he released several photographs uh, with the permission of the woman involved, uh, showing the injuries uh, that she had sustained, as you can see. Not not at all pleasant. For those uh, listening on the podcast, severe bruising uh, being shown in the photographs. Now, meanwhile, a senior police officer tweeted the following. Policing by consent is a general principle, not duty. Peaceful protest is a qualified, not absolute right, has limits when it infringes on the rights of others. The law includes the current prohibition on public gatherings and technically we're crown servants, not public servants. How utterly revealing. That was a police officer who perhaps should be lauded for his honesty, making it clear that he didn't serve the people, but served, well, the monarchy, (laughs) uh, the establishment, the powers that be. Not exactly policing by consent, that is it not the dictionary definition of policing by consent, but it just shows a anti-democratic and authoritarian ethos, which I'm afraid is all too pervasive in the British police who don't see themselves in all too many cases as serving the interests of the people, but rather as being enforcers of power. Now, before I bring in uh, our brilliant guests, and we're very lucky to have such amazing guests and brilliant journalists, and it should be pointed out, I, you know, I've worked in the media for a decade now. I'm very critical of the way the media in this country operates, not least most of it run by oligarchs who defend the status quo of which they're part. But there are many very courageous, brilliant journalists in this country who do need to be lauded. And we're lucky to have uh, two of them with us today. 
Now, imagine this was a foreign state. Imagine this was Hong Kong. Imagine this was a country in which a government was implementing authoritarian uh, legislation, allowing the police to ban all protests. And imagine you saw those footage. Imagine you saw those clips of people, protesters, women, journalists being attacked by the police. Well, I, I, I bet some senior prominent politicians would be calling for sanctions against that government. Uh, they would be castigating human rights abuses and attacks on democracy. This isn't a foreign state. This is Britain and it's 2021. Now, if you've ever wondered how democracy dies, this is how it dies. I often talk on this program about Hungary. I went to Hungary in 2016. Hungary is a country ruled by Fidesz, which used to be a member of the Liberal International, a supposedly centre-right party which radicalised in power and has hollowed out all the substance of democracy. The trappings remain. Technically, there are elections and political parties. But that's a country in which overwhelmingly the media is servile to the regime. Civil society has been decimated. Culture wars uh, and uh, venomous rhetoric against minorities, migrants, also anti-Semitism, has been used to establish an essential, essentially what is a dictatorship. Now, we're not there yet. Of course we're not. But we are in the grip of a very authoritarian right-wing form of populism, which is a real and present danger to a democracy that was hard won and hard fought for by some of your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and those ancestors before them, the giants on whose shoulders we stand. And if you ever worry, wonder, how possibly could a country which is a democracy fall prey to authoritarianism? It's, it's like this. You get you know, with the light, with government license, the police attacking protesters, where dissidents are scrutinized and held to account more than the government, and where much of the media regards protesters as a bigger danger than the government itself. That's how democracy dies. Uh, so, you know, where, where, where so much of the media sees their job as speaking power to truth, not truth to power. So we're going to talk, as I've said, with some brilliant journalists. Uh, with all that said and done, can I just uh, very lucky to to introduce our first guest, who is Adam Cantwell Corn, who is the co-founder of Bristol, uh, the Bristol Cable, which is a really fantastic independent local news outlet in Bristol of the sort that really needs to be uh, nurtured. Adam was at all the protests this week. Uh, firstly, Adam, hello, good to see you. Morning, thanks, Owen. Adam, you know, I, I, I do think the media angle is, is a part of the story. And I, I think it'd be really helpful if you just explained what the Bristol Cable is and also how people can support it, because I, I need to emphasise the reporting of the Bristol Cable has really been very, very, very good indeed. And I know lots more people are now supporting the Bristol Cable because of your coverage of the protest. So just 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 give us a quick summary of the Bristol Cable. Sure. So the Bristol Cable is a 100% member-owned local magazine. Uh, we publish uh, online and in a quarterly free print edition. Uh, right now we have 2,000, approaching 2,500 members who are all legal shareholders in the organisation. So unlike a lot of the media, we aren't owned by corporate uh, investors or we don't have a single proprietor. And our aim basically is to sort of redefine, reimagine local journalism through its ownership, uh, this is being entirely um, community owned and also through our journalism. So we focus on features, investigations, analysis, history like that, and also being careful and uh, critical about how we report on incidents like we've seen over the past week. So, Adam, can you just start, you you were at the first protest on uh, last Sunday, which really kicked yeah. off the event. So just just tell us. What was that? What, what? How did it start off, and and why did things suddenly 
to take a an ugly turn for the worst, as it were. Yeah, so I was at the protest just in a personal capacity in the, in the, earlier on in the day, and then um, later on I actually went home. Then I heard that it was sort of like getting a bit uh, sort of like tense, or it was continuing outside the main central police station in uh, Bristol city centre. So I went down there with my colleague uh, Alon Avram, and we started documenting the scene. At that point, when I arrived, about six. Um, there was probably like four or five hundred people there, maybe majority of which were sort of like sitting in the road outside the police station. And that sort of like continued for a while. It was like relatively like calm. You know, there was I was like chanting and so on. Um, there, uh, and then there was like there was there had been like some like very minor like scuffles of like when people had tried to like remonstrate with the police and like were pushed back. But like nothing on a sort of like anything uh, like what we saw later on. Um, I think. I have to say that I only was a, I only saw what I saw, like I didn't have a bird's eye view, and I'm not, and it's in, it's important to sort of like uh, qualify like the sort of like causal links between what happened. But what I did see uh, and is documented not just by the cable, but by other brilliant journalists who are on the ground locally. Um, when the police brought in some dogs from uh, uh, up the road, basically all of the people got off up off the floor. And then it was basically from that point on that it escalated into the scenes which, um, you know, we've all seen with the sort of like much more serious um, altercations going on. Obviously, the torching of the police van and the uh, the smashing and the caving in of the windows of the station. What's your own take? And you might not have one. So just tell me if you don't. On yep. the initial reports by the police of serious injuries of of uh, broken bones and, and a collapsed lung, which they later... They later claimed, I mean, obviously their attraction came after massive coverage of those serious yep. injuries. Um, I mean, I, I had to say I and other journalists did try and get in touch with them and they refused to respond to, including my colleagues at The Guardian, to mm. queries because you, you would presume if, you know, you would say suspected broken bones or suspected mm. collapsed lung, that didn't happen and you would, you know, medical advice doesn't normally operate on the basis of giving definites about things which obviously turn out not to be true. So what's your, what, I don't know, what, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think it's an interesting, that's obviously like come up a lot. And I think the first thing to say is about like how these things are reported. So we reported that the police stated this and that I think gives it the sort of like um, underpinning that it has been reported as such by the police rather than establishing it as a fact, as many of the others did. We also mentioned in our first report that the number of protesters injured was unknown. And this was obviously a sort of like a thing that was like quite uh, obviously overlooked by others. With regards to the actual incident of them retracting the statement, um, they did say, oh, it wasn't, you know, intentionally to uh, mislead. And I think it probably wasn't intentionally to mislead, although that is still speculation on my part. But I think the thing about this is, is about in such a vexed and um, uh, sort of like high profile situation, the police press operation needs to be a lot more um, uh, neat and tidy with how they're communicating about these things. Or otherwise it is going to give rise to these suspicions that they are, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of like spinning some stuff out. And I think that's really an important uh, thing to remember is that the police have a duty to be extremely careful if they want to continue to uphold the public trust that they uh, uh, continuously uh, state that they want to. So tell me about Friday's protest. What, what, how yeah. did it begin? What was the scene to begin with? Yeah. And then tell us how things changed. Well, I mean, first, if I may, there was obviously Tuesday's protest, which was... Oh, the of course, tell us about one. Tuesday's protest as well. So, yeah, of course. 
Yeah, so Tuesday's protest and all of the three protests over the past uh, week have had like slightly different characteristics. Um, on 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 the Sunday, it was like quite a bit more tense after the escalation happened. Obviously, there was like quite a lot more sort of um, confrontation, and obviously, confrontation. You know, maybe you know we can debate the use of the loaded term of that. On Tuesday, however. There was basically a protest encampment. There was like speeches. There was like uh, food being served. There would had been some tents popped up on College Green, which was the sort of like the little park outside the city hall. And uh, basically, what happened, and I saw this um, happen. It was very dark at that point because the park isn't lit. But um, the videos demonstrate, and from what I could see, the police basically circled this protest camp and, like on Friday, basically like waded in in a very, very heavy-handed and uh, forceful way to um, uh, violently eject the individuals, the majority of which were sitting down um, and sort of like passively resisting. Um, later on in that, on to, uh, just shortly after that, myself and my colleague again were there alone, and uh, we were filming the police uh, charging at protesters and trying to flush them up at Park Street, which is the main road that they were trying to seal off. It was at that point that a police officer uh, 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 made a beeline for myself and Elon and uh, threatened us with the use of force uh, if we didn't uh, move. We held up our NUJ press cards. We identified ourselves as journalists and he proceeded to uh, push and shove us with his uh, riot shield and his arms and uh, deny the fact that we were journalists as well. Um, this has obviously had like quite a lot of press attention. Immediately after that incident, a senior officer who was on the scene stepped in and told that officer to stand down. Um, when he uh, identified us as press, the senior officer, he said we could go about our business uh, unhindered. And um, the officer was told to stand back while he continued to remonstrate with us. The day after that, uh, a senior sort of like operational command officer within Avon and Somerset called myself and Alon to apologize for that incident. And I think what that again shows is that, yeah, you can say, okay, an officer might be, uh, there was like, you know, it's in the heat of the moment. Um, but what happened is, is that he rushed up to us. He threatened us. He started pushing us around. We clearly were identified as press. And then he continued to do that. And if he can't absorb information in a high profile and tense situation like that and respond accordingly, then I think there's serious issues about his fitness to be uh, in a public situation and also about the uh, appropriateness and sufficiency of the training that these officers are given. So that's Friday, uh, sorry, Sunday and Tuesday. Um, yeah. So tell us, tell us about um, Friday. Friday. Yeah. So Friday again was similar to um, Tuesday in that, um, there had been another march on College Green and it had made its way to um, the street uh, to, to nearby Bridewell Police Station again. But obviously that was like now fully uh, sealed off by uh, a significant amount of uh, police presence. Um, it had gone on for quite a while. There was the vast majority of people at this point were sitting down. Uh, I did see some eggs being thrown at officers and uh, a couple of uh, beer cans that were thrown towards uh, police lines from the back of the crowd. Um, but the vast majority of people, hundreds of people were sitting down and there was like some exchanges between the protesters. And this is an important point about like the diversity of people that were there. There was like young people there. There was sort of like people that looked like students. There was like people that looked like younger than that. And there was some, um, you know, there was some argumentation about what to do, whether to stand up, whether to uh, sit down. But the vast majority of people at that point were sitting down. And then basically there was these stirrings behind the police lines. And then as the videos demonstrate, the police uh, started to uh, wade in 
and um, uh, use their shields uh, both to push people back and to use them as weapons, as the um, the uh, videos uh, uh, demonstrate. And I think this comes back to the media point. And I had an exchange with a fellow local journalist who has been doing some really brilliant work, actually, for the local newspaper, who reported it as the police are pushing protesters. And it's this use of language, I think, that basically downplays and uh, frames what was happening in a way that I don't think is like particularly accurate. They weren't pushing protesters. They were lifting them above their heads and using them to strike individuals who were on the, the ground, uh, who, who the majority of them had their hands up and were kind of like cowering under this um, major use of force of baton strikes and shield strikes. That journalist then was like, yeah, you're right. And he changed it. And when he wrote it up, he uh, described it as actually happened. And I think this is the, the the situation that is really important when we use language like pushing or uh, uh, dispersal. I think it underplays the um, uh, significant use of physical force that the police displayed um, at that time. After that, then um, it, it sort of the, the whole situation scattered. And then there was a lot more uh, sort of like a lot of people seemed to go home and there was a lot more uh, sort of like open confrontation. There was uh, some rocks thrown and some fireworks thrown uh, towards police lines um, after the sort of like sitting protest was broken up. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And how would you just finally describe, I mean, was there an atmosphere of fear? I mean, how? what was the general kind of atmosphere amongst the protesters there, do you think? And finally, yeah. in terms of the response, the way a lot of the national media has framed this and also the political response, yeah. having been actually on the scene and heard, heard what Priti Patel, what the government, what Boris Johnson and what Labour politicians have to say, what, how do you think that reflects what you actually saw on the ground? Sure. So like on the scene in, in particular, when the police uh, proceeded to uh, advance onto the sitting crowds, I just saw a lot of scared people. Like it's being made out that this is like a mob and like, you know, violent people intent on violence. There was literally people like screaming in like shock and terror. And like you can see that in the videos. It, like it, it, I don't want to play this like good protester, bad protester vibe. But like there was just people there who were literally on the ground with their hands up. And this is 
This is not an opinion. This is what happened. You can debate. People will debate the legitimacy of the police using that force, but they cannot debate actually what happened in that incident. And it was just a lot of shock. I think people being like, "What the hell is going on? I can't believe this is happening!" Like people screaming and retreating. Um, uh, in, in that incident, when when they sort of like in the first where they it kind of escalated from a sit down protest into uh, a sort of like more kind of like skirmishy type situations across the city. And I think that is unfortunately the went that this sort of like fallout because a lot of people journalists were writing about this afterwards. And I did have a, I did have an exchange with a Guardian journalist about this because the the story that they led with first was Priti Patel's and Boris Johnson's um, condemnation of the disgraceful attacks on the police, and it it was just like you're not telling the uh, chronology of what happened. And I think there was some tax attacks on the police. Like there was people throwing some uh, rocks and there was some fireworks, but there's an important part of here that is missing is the sequencing and who and what was happening to lead to that situation. Like, and there's this big question about, oh, the, you know, police were just enforcing the law and yeah, they were enforcing coronavirus regulations, but there's obviously a conflict there between coronavirus regulations and the fundamental legal and political rights to protest and assemble and um, with the bill that's obviously the big issue here is about the police justifying that uh, significant extreme use of force to break up peaceful protests adam really appreciate you taking this time to to join us i know you've had a very long week to say the least um and your journalism has been absolutely excellent please everyone do follow the bristol cable look them up support their work they depend on the support of people uh, who appreciate their journalism. Uh, so please do that so they can continue their courageous, truthful reporting. Thank you so much, Adam, and uh, take care of yourself. And uh, I hope the following process, uh, you stay safe. Uh, but speak soon. Yeah, thanks, Owen. Take care. Um, and so just before I bring in uh, another protest we're very lucky to have, uh, Adam Parfit asked this police through Super Chat, keep the Super Chats coming, we really appreciate it. This policing, I wonder how many of you young whippersnappers know about the Battle of the Beanfield and the part the media then played in the cover-up. I mean, that uh, he's referring to the 1st of June, 1985. Wiltshire police prevented a peace convoy of several of hundreds of New Age travellers uh, and over 1,300 officers took part in an operation against 600 travellers. Um, and what the police reported about them, including petrol bombs and the like, was all false. And much of the media conspired to cover up those facts. It's important to remember that context. So thank you for that comment. Um, we're very lucky now to have uh, someone else uh, who was there on the scene. Let's bring in Lois. Lois, hello, hello, hello. How are you? Hi, How are you doing? I'm pretty good, thank you. How about you? I'm not too bad. So, firstly, you're a uh, uh, philosophy and English undergraduate, I believe, at Bristol. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Fantastic. And so just tell me about Friday. Tell me about why you took part in the protest and tell me about the atmosphere that you saw when you got there. Okay, so in terms of why I took part, so I went to the one on Sunday first and I was there for the duration of the peaceful protest. And then we went home because we thought things were kind of dying out and then we saw everything cook off online. So we went back later and saw like like just it was absolutely crazy how heated up everything was like everything was on fire like people just screaming the police were charging at people um and then we missed out on the protest on Tuesday which was obviously the GRT one at College Green as well and then a couple of my friends went to that and then their reports of what happened were that everyone was 100% peaceful people literally sat down and then the police came up and started 
trying to disperse people, but using violence to do that. So first of all, they trampled over Sarah Everard's memorial on College Green. You can see the videos of that. And so obviously, like, that's just, that's not coming in with, like, the right kind of vibe. And then the way they started trying to disperse people, like, they brought in the riot police, like, from the beginning. They were using violence throughout. And then the reason we decided to go on Friday was not just because we supported Kill the Bill, which was obviously why we went on Sunday, because we didn't know everything that was going to happen. Um, it was also because there was so much unreported police violence that's happened. And like everyone I'd spoken to from my hometown back home, like had this really weird view of what happens. Like it was all the protests, starting all this violence. Like it was just like a mob of angry thugs just trying to use this opportunity to like have a big riot or something like that. And both the protests during the week, I obviously wasn't at the Tuesday one, but all the video footage I've seen online, I think I've heard my friends, both the protests during the week, they were just, it was it was just nothing like that like it couldn't be much further from the truth in terms of what happened um so then yeah we went to the friday one with the intention of like well my intention was like shedding light on the events that were actually going on in bristol like the impression everyone had online was just so far well not everyone but the majority of people had online because of the media bias was just so far removed from what actually happens um and then i guess silver lining of all the violence that went down and everything that happened again on Friday. Silver lining was that at least so many people had come with the same like intentions that I had, that you can go online and you can see all this video footage of like protesters, peaceful protesters being stood there and police literally just beating them. Um, and yeah, so that's why we went on Friday. I mean, how did you feel when things start? How did you see how things started to, how things escalated? How, how, what was your perception of that? And did, how did you feel? Did you feel scared? Um, so in terms of escalation, I think on Friday, unfortunately, again, we missed actually most of the escalation. Oh, yeah. We went to the peaceful bit and then left and then came back. Um, but the bits that we did see were genuinely terrifying, like in person, like the police in previous interactions I've had with the police, like in Bristol or elsewhere, there's been some kind of, everyone's trying to de-escalate this situation. Like no one wants it to get worse and things like that. But when we spoke to the police on Friday night, like there was just pure anger. Like all of them were just so angry. And like, there was no one trying to be like, okay, like we get that you're trying to protest peacefully. Like it's okay. Like everyone, like the police were literally just there to like go in hard no they were not holding back and it was it was genuinely terrifying because there's so much police brutality and like you read about it and things like that but i've definitely never seen it firsthand until that night and it was so scary how black and white it was and then the fact that like everything online still points towards the protesters mm -hmm. being the provocateurs and the problem and finally, I suppose a kind of big picture thing. And without, I'm going to be this uh, older millennial speaking to a Zoomer. Um, but how do you think all of this is played? Look, you're, you know, millennials had it tough and Zoomers are going to have it a lot tougher. Uh, picked up the price of the financial crash and now being expected to pay the price for the government messing up COVID 19 and having a worse economic consequence as a result. We've seen. The vast majority of jobs lost over the last year have been people under 35. And now, you know, a lot of younger people, they're seeing, as people saw, to be fair, in the student protests of 2010, which I took part in, and the way the police respond, it takes a lot of illusions away from the nature of power in the state. I mean, do you think there's a sense, what do you think the sense amongst people of a younger generation currently is 
from your experience in this country? Do you think that this is politicising people, that in the months ahead, this could be a foreshadow of, of, of far more upheaval to come? Uh, yeah, essentially, I completely agree with everything you just said. I think anyone who was kind of like on the verge of politics coming into uni or like not that aware, especially in Bristol, just because of everything that's going on, it forces you into it. And like a lot of students have been victims of the police violence. Like some guy in my building, he was peacefully protesting and the police dog like a bit of massive chunk out of his leg. Um, so people who were like just trying to stay out of things and just stay on the edges and just observe are definitely getting brought into that. And in terms of this foreshadowing things to come, I would 100% agree with that as well. Um, particularly in terms of like, I think with the bill and everything like that, like this is very much setting the precedent for what's going to happen next. If this goes through, like there's nothing to stop every protest ending up like this because like that, like if peaceful protest is legal, then this is what it's going to be like like it's just police brutality and it's so scary to see it's so scary to kind of like for people who are coming of age at this point and they're waking up into this world where you have no opportunity of opposing anything like they are literally waking up into kind of like this author the beginning of an authoritarian state essentially well not the beginning but like the beginnings of things that everyone can see and yeah, it's it's very scary for people our age, but the silver lining is that people are getting involved in politics and things like that. But it's kind of a bit late for that if we can't really get that involved anymore because we can't oppose anything. But yeah. Lois, thank you so, so much. And in the coming weeks and months, do stay safe and um, all, my, all, all my solidarity. But really appreciate such short notice as well. You coming on to talk about your own experiences. So thank you so much. And uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you for having me. Um, we're very lucky to have these voices to just tell us what they actually saw, what they actually experienced. And as we can see, much of the media has failed in its job catastrophically and instead has seen its role as speaking power to, to truth and holding uh, protesters and dissidents uh, to a higher level of scrutiny than the government of the day. Not great. But there are other exceptions and one very striking exception is a brilliant young journalist called Ben Smoke uh, who writes for Hawk Magazine amongst other things. Ben, great to see you Ben, how you doing? Hi mate, yeah good thank you, how are you? Not bad, you must be shattered because you've just come back from Bristol back to London. So just tell me when, tell, tell me about, uh, because you did, I do for everyone do follow Ben Smoke um, on the old Twitter, uh, has done some absolutely fantastic reporting not just in Bristol, but elsewhere. But just just tell us then, what, tell us when you turned up to the protest, tell us about the scene. So I, I kind of, I went down uh, to Bristol on Friday afternoon. Um, I got to College Green, which is the, um, the kind of where it was starting uh, around 10 past four. And there were kind of a few hundred people sort of milling around. And, and what I found quite interesting was the police. So it, it, I've been covering all of the, the um, Kill the Bill and kind of Sever Everard uh, vigil and, and all of the protests here in London. And the police um, predominantly kind of take a step back. Uh, you kind of have the, the friendly light blue uh, cops who come in and, and have a little chat with you. But here in Bristol, uh, when I when I was there, um, I was kind of walking through College Green and there were already uh, police officers with kind of like in riot gear. And they had batons uh, kind of just, just hanging around and, and milling around within the crowd. But... Um, within kind of 10 minutes of being a, a police officer 
uh, there was kind of a confrontation between a couple of protesters and a police officer. A police officer took umbrage um, at a protester's sign, which included the word fuck. And um, it just sort of, yeah, the, the atmosphere was very febrile and and aggy. And um, people are obviously very, very angry in Bristol about the policing operation and how it's gone down. And I think genuinely shocked, and particularly after what happened on Friday, people, you know, I've been speaking to, I've got, I've got friends there who, who've been out and who have been injured and, and been arrested. And they are kind of all, yeah, in a complete state of, of disbelief about, about what's happening in their city. Um, I think it kind of, what's really interesting is that the stark difference between the way that Avon and Somerset police decided to police the uh, Black Lives Matter protest in Bristol, which is the toppling of uh, the Colston statue. As that was happening, the police kind of got out of their vans, saw it, and a decision was made you know, somewhere within the command structure to not intervene and to kind of allow the protest to carry on, um, kind of understanding that if they did intervene, and if they did kind of wade in, that would create a much bigger public order situation. And I, I, if I remember correctly, that's what the commissioner said at the time. And so it, to me, it, it's interesting that they seem to have completely lost all of those lessons. And it wasn't just in Bristol that that, that happened in, at Black Lives Matter. You know, there was uh, a one weekend where I think around 15,000 people were out in Manchester. And the police kind of took a step back and allowed the protesters to to come out and 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 you know to sort of exercise their rights and to to be angry about you know the gruesome murder of, of George Floyd and, and police brutality and racism, um, and the protest went off without uh, arrests and without violence. Whereas in London, where I was, where I was covering it, the police didn't do that, and they they came in heavy handed and, and it erupted and they charged us with horses and there were buttons swinging and there were kettles and and it just sort of shows. If the events of the last couple of weeks have shown over and over again that when the police come in to these situations, when they when they come with shields, when they when they kind of try and intervene and stop, that's when the violence happens. That's that's how these things escalate. The police do not de-escalate. They they are the instigators. What was the? I mean, when we see the videos, the videos are shocking and the pictures are shocking. I don't think it really does justice to actually being there. I've been in pretty ugly circumstances in protests and you see the videos afterwards, you think it's worse. So just tell us, you know, because a lot of people have seen these clips and they're shocked. They're genuinely shocked. Uh, people online have seen them. They've been shared extensively and people, wow, this is horrific. But just tell us the kind of, you know, disjuncture almost between watching the videos and the reality of actually being there. Yeah, so I, I you know, I've been on... I've been sort of organizing or um, you know, attending or reporting on demos for um, kind of over a decade now, which makes me sound very old. But um, you know, I was I was radicalized at the student demos um, back in 2010. Um, I've seen a lot of police violence. I've seen a lot of kind of hairy situations. But this was this was something else. It was relentless. It was indiscriminate. It was brutal. I saw injured protesters i saw a, a guy who had like a bandage around his head had a silver blanket on was clearly in shock from having been hit over the head he was then re-attacked by the police as they were pushing forward i saw them push people who were retreating with such force that they flew six feet through the air you saw i mean we've all seen the the video i'm sure of, of the police kind of clobbering the guy that was on the floor that couldn't get up and 
that wasn't an isolated incident. It was genuinely scary. And, you know, I, I would consider myself to be a fairly kind of weathered, uh, somewhat jaded um, kind of attendee of protests and, you know, I, I report on them a lot. Um, but this was, you know, I genuinely felt quite shaken after it because there was just blood and screaming and people were panicking and petrified. And the police just didn't stop. They just kept coming and pushing and pushing and pushing. And the violence, I mean, Adam was kind of speaking about it earlier, the way that they were sort of using their shields to, to smash people. I know of, of someone who was hospitalized, uh, she had a broken nose, um, there have been images shared um, of other people who've suffered like horrendous injuries. Um, and it, it was just sort of, it, yeah, it kind of came almost out of nowhere because it had been so kind of jovial and uh, and you know it, it's, it's Bristol so you know it very much was a Bristol protest there was a lot of dubstep and you know <laughs> all of that and skanking you know, what, whatever they are whatever they're gonna do but like it was it was fine and lots of people were chanting like over and over again this is a peaceful protest you know we are peaceful how about you and as the cops moved in and as, as they charged that, that's what people were shouting they had their hands up and you know there were people throwing bottles and there were people throwing stones but because they were being charged by a militarized force and you, you kind of um it's kind of hard to describe but where the police station is it's kind of a, a bit narrow and there was a, a line of cops there and they pushed forward and then all of a sudden kind of from other streets we had dogs arriving and horses and dozens and dozens and dozens of police all with in riot gear all with batons swinging over their heads um yeah it, it was kind of I, yeah, I was trying my best to try and capture it as I was uh, live tweeting it and reporting on it, but it just there was nothing. There were there weren't really words that could do that. Um, yeah, I think it's like I've been sort of trying to process it over the last couple of days, and, and I haven't really mm-hmm. quite sunk in yet. I mean, did you feel pers- Did you ever feel worried about your own safety? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I got hit a couple of times, like kind of glancingly, um, as I was sort of trying to film, um, which I didn't actually, uh, I was like, you know, so hyped up on adrenaline and actually feel it until I got back to my hotel and I was like, ow. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think I was thinking about this earlier and, and when I was going down, um, we obviously, you know, I am very lucky to be supported by some incredible colleagues at, at Huck who uh, kind of enabled me to, to run around and, and report on these things. And, and we had a meeting and we you know, we were making plans about what happens if I get injured, what what happens if I get arrested. And fundamentally, we shouldn't have to be doing that. Like I, as a journalist, shouldn't have to be you know, making provisions for what happens if I get hospitalized for at a time when I'm doing my job. And you know, the same for anybody uh, attending those protests. It shouldn't be the case that you have to have these contingency plans because the police violence is so extreme that... You know, there is there is a, a a strong potential that you are in some way going to be injured. Um, so yeah, it was it was petrifying, and it was kind of you know the, the crowd was scattering. It was hard to kind of know where to go. It, it didn't really the police kind of didn't seem to. I mean, eventually what they were doing is kind of like making what they called a sterile area around the police station. But uh, I, if if you've been to Bristol, um, there's a kind of shopping centre in the middle called Broadmead, which kind of got. Uh, it's like pedestrianized. Um, it's got a fair number of different streets coming up, going up to a big shopping center. And they were pushing them back and people were just sort of scattering and the, the police were coming from everywhere. And it was just, 
yeah, I, I kind of ran up a ramp at one point and I turned around and there was a, uh, another, a press photographer there and he was just in shock. He was just there like, I have never seen anything like this. I, you know, I, he said to me, I thought Tuesday was bad, um, but this is unreal. This is indiscriminate is, is the word that he used. And, and it was, it was just violence. It was just like pure, brutal carnage that carried on going and going and going. I mean, Justin Hanala from the United States, I saw the police in the UK is right wing is their US counterparts. And I suppose the way of looking at it from, our, I mean, look, I quoted before a senior police officer speaking about uh, peaceful protests being a qualified and absolute right and describing themselves as crown servants, not public servants. I suppose what, you know, from both of our experiences of, of protests, but looking back, the way the police have treated striking minors, obviously Hillsborough, working-class Liverpool fans who were demonised extensively in the 80s, which was a precondition for what happened at Hillsborough. Um, uh, you know, throughout history, striking workers. Uh, also, of course, uh, uh, black people, uh, various other minorities, like Roma and Travel and Gypsy people who were particularly targeted by this legislation. I mean, what does this tell us, I suppose, about the institutional nature of the police force and how the police force sees itself in situations like this? I think, um, you know, fundamentally, the, the, the police are an arm of the state. They are there to um, uphold and to enforce a legal system, which, you know, if you kind of track it back, the legal system is there predominantly to protect property, you know, that, it's overwhelmingly kind of how it how it works and how it functions as, and how it plays out and so i think that we can't really analyze the police in a vacuum we can't kind of like take it without understanding the fact that you know these these orders for want of a better word are, are coming from much higher up and are coming from within government and you know there was that the the court case uh, just before the sarah everard vigil that uh, reclaimed these streets to, to try and kind of like allow the vigil to, to take place legally. And in that, uh, a judge kind of gave... Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, Ben, so I muted you back. So I mute myself and I muted you. Start again, carry that little bit on, carry on, sorry. So yeah, in, in the court case, the, the, the judge basically said, you know, that it, the police can deem protests lawful within these COVID regulations. There is wiggle room there for them to do it. Um, and they haven't, and they didn't. And they didn't in London, and they haven't in Bristol, and, and they haven't anywhere as, as far as I'm aware. I think maybe there was one uh, police force that did. But that came from government. That came from a meeting between senior police officers and the policing minister, and the, the memo then got leaked. Um, and it came from there. So I, I think that what we're seeing is the... Uh, you know the implementation and the, and the defense i guess of the the kind of johnson government agenda when it comes to rights when it comes to protest and you know this isn't unique to the johnson government our right to protest has been under sustained attack um for years and particularly under con consecutive tory governments you know, theresa may has been talking about how inconvenient the Human Rights Act is for a long time. And there has been movement within the Tory party and it's kind of gathering momentum um, you know, around this idea of like a British Bill of Rights, which, which we know is not going to uh, be anywhere near as strong in terms of protecting what is our fundamental human right to protest. You know, they 
have been utilizing and using everything that they have. Um, you, know, you saw the the vast overreach of the Met at the Extinction Rebellion protests in October 2019, if I remember correctly, uh, in implementing Section 14 of the Public Order Act and, and you know banning XR. Uh, from congregating anywhere in London, and it was then obviously deemed illegal, uh, unlawful after the fact. Um, but these, are, you know, this this push against protest, that the idea that uh, you know it, it's kind of it's inconvenient and they that they don't want it is you know is sustained and it is continuing on. And so I, the police you know, play a pivotal role in that and will continue to, um, um, you know, will continue to I think escalate actually. And I think what we're seeing here, you know, if we look at what happened at uh, the Sarah Everard vigil on Clapham Common? What happened um, even in the following demos in London? You know, they, the police kind of half took a step back, um, and then you know, at various demos that I was at, they were they were just running in and indiscriminately grabbing people. They were they, you know, they were causing terror and panic and um, unnecessarily because people were just marching. I think that you know we are going to continue seeing them executing essentially the orders of. The government, who fundamentally do not really like the fact that we protest. Uh, I mean, one of the questions Tudor Acid has asked, which I think is a, a very, very important one, I'd be interested in your thoughts. To what extent are print and TV journalists aware that the line they are repeating is untrue, but too afraid to report the truth? I suppose what are your what are your thoughts about the way the media often finds itself, as I keep saying, speaking power to truth and regurgitating what the authorities. Um, feed them uncritically when obviously the role of the journalist should be to to scrutinize without fear or favor the powerful i think i mean not you know i don't want to to class out other journalists but fundamentally a lot of them are very wet and i don't think that they have a particular understanding of protest of these movements of social movements i think they have a desire to have that understanding either actually um and so i think that for them it's kind of you know being a journalist is is uh oh, i'm not gonna like run a sub story but it's like you know it's a stressful job and there's a lot of things going on and particularly if you're not on the ground and you get given this quote by the cops and you're like okay cool i'm running with that i just think that fundamentally they are not they are not equipped critically to engage with uh, a movement, a social movement, and they they don't really have any impetus to do so. And I think that they're sort of, you know, we, we've had this kind of weird shift, um, kind of, you know, over decades and decades, but I think particularly in this sort of like post-Brexit world where people aren't really sure what, people still aren't really sure how Brexit's going to play out and they're not really sure like kind of where the country stands and where where the country kind of sits in in terms of its kind of like social values i think most papers are just sort of like playing to what they think the crowd is and that's obviously not what they're supposed to do um that was a, a bit of a garbled answer but yeah i know i get finally finally i mean what do you think about i guess where things are heading because you have a lot of younger people whose lives have been made very difficult stripped of basic security Young people, of course, have been kicked in the teeth in lots of different ways for the last decade, whether it be the trebling of tuition fees, uh, for daring to dream for university education, the lack of secure jobs, the fall in wages, the onslaught against youth services, the slashing of public services young people disproportionately rely on, social security entitlements, which, again, disproportionately uh, affect them, uh, as well as a sense of an attack on a lot of their 
progressive social values that a lot of younger people hold dear. And now in the, this particular crisis, overwhelmingly jobs lost have gone to uh, have been lost to people under the age of 35. We could go on. Plus now the specter of, of the state clamping down in an ever more authoritarian way. Plus, and I'm going to talk about this short, very shortly, uh, the lack of the failure of the main opposition party to articulate the grievances and offer a compelling alternative that resonates with many of the people who have most badly been hit. Where do you think this is all heading? I mean, I think, I think you know, people, people we, I think we can kind of see what's happened. You know, people, people are out on the streets and people are prepared to be out on the streets. And I, I think that's just going to continue. I think you're, you're right to kind of talk about the, the complete lack of any tangible opposition from the Labour Party, you know, their their lines on, on this have been consistently horrific. Um, they have been consistently wet. And there is just simply no point, frankly, to them releasing a statement because it doesn't really, it, what, what they're saying doesn't mean anything. I think people are angry. And what we're seeing as well is, you know, the, you know my generation, who was the student fees generation, have kind of had that decade, as you say, but you know, we now have a new generation as well coming through and have, have, have been at the, you know, the sharpest edges of various bits of uh, the pandemic and the economic fallout from that. Um, it's kind of creating this perfect storm, I think, of a struggle, a sustained struggle on the streets, the like of which um, we haven't seen uh, for a while. And I think that that's basically where we're heading. I, I, I think this summer is going to be uh, rowdy. I think it's probably the, the best way of explaining it. Ben, really, really appreciate your time. And please do follow Ben Smoke on the twitter.com thing. Um, and follow follow Ben's work uh, in Hook and elsewhere. It's brilliant journalism, particularly for those, maybe there are a lot of younger people watching this, I know, but for those maybe of another generation who are interested in knowing what's currently going on, particularly amongst uh, younger people in this country, uh, right now, uh, Ben is one of those absolutely critical voices. So thank you, Ben. I look forward to, well, we've got rule of six. Soon we can hang out and have a beer. In the sun, no, it's going to get sunnier from next week. No, on Tuesday, it's going to be blasting. I'm going to get my tan on, on the heat. 24 centigrade. I know. I've been doing my fitness regime for for the sole purpose of waiting. <laughs> waiting to set it up. Yeah, uh, so anyway, we will, we'll have a... We'll, we'll, we'll have a good summer. All right, Ben. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so Thank much. Brilliant as ever. Thanks, cheers, Ben. Thanks. Now, finally, and if you're watching live, do like the video, subscribe, support us any way you can. Um, finally, this is actually connected, I would say, because it might not seem connected, but it is connected. And it's to do with the Labour Party, because I think what's happening in this country at the moment, as I just said to Ben there, is you have a very large number of People generally disproportionately on the age of 40, for, for whom life is hard, uh, housing crisis, jobs crisis, living standards crisis, uh, crisis in terms of public services, uh, in terms of general insecurity, very hard. Uh, obviously, during the pandemic, as I keep saying, younger people are more likely to have lost their jobs, to have been hit economically in lots of different ways. And you can see, obviously, a conservative government which has active contempt for a lot of the social values they hold there on issues like the rights of minorities, for example, and a lack of optimism about the future, combined with an increasingly authoritarian state, which we can see on the streets, and finally, 
now a Labour Party which is not offering an, a compelling alternative, doesn't seem to have any interest in representing the interests of, of those younger people at all at the moment, hasn't even tried to articulate in any coherent way their grievances or offer hope. And I think that is a toxic brew in terms of what is going to happen in this country. If a hot summer is beckoning, as Ben just alluded to, a hot summer of unrest, there will be lots of people responsible for that. And one of them will be the Labour leadership for failing in their responsibilities to pin the calamity of the one of the worst handlings of a pandemic on earth on the, on the British government and their failure to offer an inspiring alternative. And there was very privately, whatever wing of the Labour Party they're from, very few Labour MPs currently think this is going well. We currently have, um, I mean, Keir Starmer's ratings are in collapse, Labour's polling is bad, and that's before mass vaccination has achieved the unlocking of this country. And at the moment, they're talking of sacking the Shadow Chancellor, Annalise Dodds, and I have to say, there's something particularly distasteful about Keir Starmer and his team scapegoating a woman, trailing her imminent dismissal in the Murdoch press and the Times, which is Sunday Times, which is reporting it for their own failures, because whatever Labour's failings at the moment, it's not Annalise Dodds who's responsible for them. And I think Keir Starmer and his team need to look a little closer to home rather than finding a woman they can throw uh, to the uh, to the uh, to the dogs barking within the British media. But it's also with what they're doing within the party. And I'm going to bring in someone now, and I think this really sums it up. Kieran Glassmith, who I didn't actually realise when I approached him, is actually in Bristol. Uh, now, uh, so there was a theme. Um, now, Kieran, you were a Labour candidate for the coming local elections. That's right, isn't it? So just tell me, tell me what happened. Yeah, so I was a candidate up until about two days ago, officially, for Cotton Ward in Bristol. Um, it's a happening place at the moment. Um, I got a letter about four or five days ago for, by email saying that um, I was under investigation for my social media um, in relation to there's a series of tweets they sent me screenshots of most of them weren't even my own tweets they were just retweets that I'd made of other people mostly making just factual criticisms of Keir Starmer um, one of them was a video where Starmer had bragged about how many people he prosecuted for drug offences obviously people were criticising that because it's it's not what you want from the leader of the Labour Party um, and also one tweet where I called him Keith um, I've been told that uh, Targeted and abusive social media was the phrase that they used, um, which obviously, uh, yeah, is being used as an excuse to to deselect a few Labour Labour candidates where they can. I mean, I'm just trying to bring up now some of the absolutely absurd. In fact, let me just bring up some of the absolutely uh, ridiculous. Just bear with me because I I tweeted this out. This was on uh, Friday night when you when you tweeted about this, mm-hmm. um, and. Some of the tweets include, I think I retweeted a couple of them myself, actually. Uh, no way you're going to be a Labour candidate now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, interesting. One of them from Saranya, who is from Bristol, uh, who was involved in the protest, who actually interviewed on this channel last week, uh, watching, yeah, this was about watching Starmer brag about how many people he prosecuted for drug offences. Um, also, uh, yeah, someone talking about during the riots, of course, someone with a bottle of water being jailed when he was DPP, um, criticising Blairites being filling senior positions. Uh, one uh, over when the uh, Labour Party abstained on a bill allowing undercover police officers to rape, torture, and murder, um, and you quote tweeted with nice work on the real opposition at Keith. Keith is. An affectionate term used to describe Keir Starmer on left Twitter. 
Uh, I mean, if you're getting annoyed about being called Keith. And you consider uh, the things that get thrown at random leftists over the internet and they can't handle Keith. Yeah. I'd love to be, if, if that was the worst I got, I'd be a very happy man. Um, and uh, another one, Ali Fogg, who I also follow on Twitter. Very good. Do follow Ali Fogg. If you want to know why Corbyn defies the Labour Whips, it's because the Labour Whips regularly tell their MPs to vote for war crimes, torture, and tearing up the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It's a fact. Uh, Kofi Annan, the UN uh, General Secretary, described the Iraq war as uh, illegal. That's a war crime. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people died. Um, I actually think there's a lot of racism associated with the Iraq war in the way people fail to take seriously the mass slaughter of hundreds of thousands of Arabs because of British and uh, American and Western intervention. Now, I had to say, imagine at the Jeremy Corbyn, someone had been deselected for... I mean, because he got a lot worse from a lot of candidates. I mean, it's just astonishing. What does this say about the culture being fostered within the Labour Party at the moment? I mean, I think the message they're trying to send is that when Starmer talks about unity, what he meant was that nobody's allowed to criticise him, that you're going to have a united party because there's only one line that's allowed. And that's what Starmer's saying. Um, yeah, I mean, it, so there were four, four, I think, candidates in Bristol who got the same, got told at the same time they were under investigation and suspended from being a candidate. Two of them have been allowed back in now with a strong warning and one of them is ha having to now be interviewed um, further by some kind of panel to, to decide whether he can be a candidate again. And this is what less than six weeks before the local elections. Very clearly, it's trying to build up that culture of intimidation so that everybody feels like they, they can't get up, they can't risk uh, criticising the, the people in charge, which interestingly is very similar to uh, we've had a, a councillor in Bristol resign recently from Labour Group. Um, she issued a statement about, I think you may have retweeted this as well, but a statement about um, the culture of bullying from the mayor and the mayor's office and members of the cabinet. Um, it's a very similar issue with the idea that you, the people at the top set the line and nobody's allowed to criticise that. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? We had years of this idea of the Labour leadership of Jeremy Corbyn was Stalinist, authoritarian, and so on and so forth. I was finding this quite interesting because... I used to work for John McDonnell. I started working for John McDonnell in 2005. See, I am old. Um, and the first week I was there, our office was helping to lead the um, parliamentary uh, rebellion against 90 days detention being forced through by New Labour, which actually was the first time New Labour were defeated uh, in Parliament at the time because they had such a big majority. Um, they had a consistent record of opposing attacks on, on civil liberties. And obviously... In the last and 2019 general election, you had, uh, again, oh, the Stalinist tyranny is going to come. And obviously now we have a government allowing the banning of all protests by the police. What does it say about the fact that, you know, if this was the other way round under Corbyn and you were a Blairite and, you, you know, it'd probably get quite a lot of media attention as an example of this is the Stalinist tactics and nature of the leadership. Yeah, I mean, might not be a popular opinion, but I think that Corbyn and McDonald should have been a little bit more authoritarian while they were in charge. Um, given that they were going to be called Stalinists anyway, uh, you may as well actually do some work to try and get rid of the people who are spending their entire life in Parliament trying to um, overthrow the the, mem the leader that members elected. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of the, the media response, I think... Um, Sometimes it's easier to look at, easy to think about these things as a conspiracy, as if, you know, oh, they're all like conspiring in the back room and saying, no, you're not allowed to talk about this. But what it actually is, is just they all happen to have the same shared interests. The, the, the press don't want a radical left government, which is going to threaten to do anything like regulate when they're allowed to lie. Um, so they obviously spend all their time uh, reporting on anything bad the left might have done. Um, 
Starmer doesn't pose a threat to them, so they're just kind of going to trot out dull stories about him when they feel like it. Kieran, I really appreciate you spending time uh, on a Sunday talking to us about this. And it, again, it just it does show that there's a, you know, and, I, and the reason I think this is very funny, by the way, because, um, well, I mean, it isn't funny what's happened to you, but there's, there's something funny. I mean, it's for the laugh. I've got to the point. I, where, I've, uh, I've been laughing. I mean, but I've got to the point now where just given how absurd everything is, what else can you do? Um, and in The Observer, a shadow minister is anonymously quoted as saying, the problem is that Keir's team is very inexperienced. I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, we're in a bit of a state. I'm not going to disagree with that. They have spent too much time over the last year trying to appease the hard left. <laughs> that, I, what am I, I mean, literally, what, I mean, it's, what do you even say at this point? It's just so ludicrous. It's just so much gaslighting. It's just, on what planet do these people think anyone lives on? And the reason they're saying this is they know it's going badly. They know it's going badly. Uh, and what they thought is, oh, the grown-ups are now in the room. Uh, you know, we've binge-watched the West Wing. That'll get us through this. Uh, you know, we're serious. The people we replaced were such amateurs. This is going to be easy. And it's not gone well. It's going badly. It's going really badly. They're nowhere near, nowhere near the prospect of forming the next government. And the only thing they can therefore do is fall back on a default of, oh, the left, Jamie Corbyn, the left, when actually it's their own... It's their own abysmal failings. They fail to offer an opposition. They don't have anything to say. They don't know what they want to do with power. Uh, they're failing the very people they exist to represent. Uh, they promised unity. They promised electability. And they promised to safeguard the principles as they enshrined in the 10 pledges of the domestic agenda of the left. And they failed in every single camp. Yeah, I think that a lot of the... A lot of the behaviour of the right doesn't make any sense if you think that they actually want... If you think their main goal is to win a government... But then if you think about it from the point of view of actually every individual person, all the, the staff and the MPs who've been there for years, their main goal is to maintain their own position and stay safe. And in that case, the big threat to them isn't failing to win government because that doesn't change their position. They can keep their job or their role forever. The threat to them would be if there was a left, a strong left and Labour Party that's trying to democratise things and actually make them accountable so they could be deselected if they fail at their job of what supposedly winning government. Um, and if you think about it from that point of view, then everything they're doing makes a lot of sense. They're happy to sabotage 10 years worth of elections like they did in the 80s and 90s if it means making sure that there's no accountability in the labour structures. Kieran, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And uh, solidarity. And uh, I think it's very important we draw attention to these examples, which most of the media are going to ignore, uh, but we're not going to. So thanks so much for joining us. And, thanks for having me on. And take care of yourself. Ooh, what a show. That was brilliant. Uh, such a great range of guests who could speak from experience about what's actually happening on the ground uh, in a way, I'm afraid, has been missing from a lot of the media coverage. It should be the responsibility of the media to hold the powerful to account, not to hold critics of the government to account ceaselessly and protesters to account, but the government of the day that is actually in power and is ever increasingly authoritarian with the complicity, I'm afraid, of too much of the media, much of which is openly partisan in its avowed support for that government. As I've said, I have been to Hungary, and it's not hard to see how far we could go down a path of ending up like that country with the substance of democracy gutted from the inside out, leaving us with a hollow shell and, in practical terms, a pseudo-democracy, which is authoritarian in nature. And the reason we should talk about this is when we saw those scenes, 
at Bristol. It is really important to emphasize that our rights and freedoms are not given to us. The powerful did not wake up one day and think, oh, I'm feeling generous today. I'm going to give women the vote for a bit of a laugh. I'm going to to give workers some rights. People had to fight for them. And they were hated and demonized at the time. You know, take, I don't know, LGBTQ activists. Yeah, I think the, the film Pride is a really striking example because you watch Pride about LGBTQ activists in support of the minors in the mid-1980s who were on strike. And you kind of watch Pride and kind of think, well, look, everyone supports the minors and the LGBTQ activists. They were obviously vindicated. At the time, it was so hard to be either of those things. That's why they formed that alliance because, you know, the National Union of Mine Workers supported, uh, as a consequence, um, uh, pushing the Labour Party to support gay rights. Because they were both being completely demonized by the media and brutalized by the police. And that's how they formed that shared bond. And now everyone, you don't find it, you know, now you get right-wing Labour MPs going, yeah, well, the miners were really brutalized by the police, terrible police brutality, as if they'd be saying that in the day. They'd be they'd be cheering on the batons as they smashed those miners in the face and be calling them violent thugs, because that's what the, the media and a lot of MPs did in, in their time back in the miners' strike. And the same thing, it's so easy. It's so easy to be on the side of protesters in the past. There's no courage involved. You don't, you don't, you don't achieve anything by doing that. You're just standing on their shoulders um, and, and taking credit for the, for, for the things they won. But they won by fighting, by struggling, and being demonised and attacked by the media and by much of the police as well at the time as well. Now, this is a dangerous moment. And we should be clear, it is a very, very dangerous moment. Our democracy is in a very serious crisis. If you have a right-wing government pushing forward a repressive uh, piece of legislation, allowing the banning of any protest, it shouldn't be spelled, it shouldn't need to be spelled out how dangerous that moment was. And just imagine, as I've said, and it is annoying to have to keep doing this thought experiment, that it was another country. Now, I do think we need to start thinking about how people organise this summer, how people organise to organise not just peaceful protest, but peaceful civil disobedience on the streets of this country, uh, because leadership is not being offered by the Labour Party, and leadership needs to be offered by a mass movement which offers a voice to the people who are suffering the consequences of this government, which has presided over the mass death of its own people, completely avoidably, one of the worst death tolls, worst death rates on the planet, and as a consequence, because a public health crisis is an economic crisis, one of the worst economic consequences as well, and they expect the same people who keep picking up the tab over and over again, like they did for the financial crash, to pick up the tab all over again. And that cannot be allowed to happen. And the only way people win their rights and their freedoms is by organising and making their voice so loud they cannot be ignored. That's the lesson from Bristol. And, you know, in the future, people are going to look back and go, well, those Bristol protesters were really brutally attacked and brutalised by the police when they were trying to fight this really anti-democratic piece of legislation you know, and but those people were not on the side at the time. These people will be vindicated by history. That's how these things generally go. But the question we all have to ask ourselves in the here and now is what side are you on? And that's not to, you know, to 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 take the side of of power and authority as they accumulate ever more authoritarian powers. It should be to 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 how we organize to defend rights and freedoms our ancestors fought for at great cost and great sacrifice. So solidarity to those in Bristol, those protesters, um, solidarity with those who've been uh, attacked and injured by the police. 
um, and let's keep organizing to defend our rights and freedoms, uh, just like our ancestors have done and just like people in Bristol have done as well. It's been a real honor to have such fantastic uh, guests who can speak from their experiences about what's happening on the ground. We really appreciate it. And uh, just finally, please like the video to if you're watching live to encourage people to watch it. Subscribe. Uh, for those supporting us on Patreon, you make this possible. You make the team possible. Patreon.com forward slash Jones 84 You help decide what we talk about, what documentaries we do and so on. We've got a great documentary coming up. We'll be back next Sunday live at 12 o'clock. We've got some great interviews throughout the week and great videos throughout the week. Uh, so make sure uh, you watch those and I will see you soon.